So good morning. Today is a wonderful day. Many of you will celebrate Father's Day, and today is Juneteenth, the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. We could say that today we are called to celebrate, celebrate blessings. In other words, a celebration is an appropriate response. And what about our adopting the eighth principle? We have chosen to consciously pay attention to how we impact and interact with others while we work to undo systems that have favored white people and caused inequality and injustice for others. And I'm still celebrating Ivy Cochran Murty's words to us about how youth is looking at the eighth principle and considering who this congregation will become I feel a celebration for that is an appropriate response. So let's do it. Father's Day, Pride Month, pronoun options many of us did not grow up with, the the facts of white supremacy, honoring the trauma we know is associated with slavery, and uncertainty about how the Eighth Principle might change us. Yet, here we are, opening into uncertainty As we move into the months ahead, in a complicated world, we are allowing ourselves to be uncertain and to some extent, perhaps, uncomfortable. These are appropriate responses. The term appropriate response is a Buddhist expression, and here's what I know about it. A 10th century monk in South China is said to have asked the Zen master, What is the highest, most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and the patriarchs? And the Zen master replied, an appropriate response. You may know this about Zen masters. They sometimes say what seem off the wall, but it's meant to serve the purpose of jerking or joking their students out of their rational way of looking at things and into a deeper contemplation. They ask questions like, what is the sound of one hand clapping, and do dogs have Buddha nature? And the answer to that is mu, M-U. Thus, the possibility that the expression and appropriate response could be sort of a koan. And we will not have any specific instructions to work from, but we will go forward, or backward, or sideways, sizing up each situation until we land on an appropriate response. When it comes to sorting out what might be considered appropriate, a teacher in the Thai forest tradition of the Theravada Buddhism recommends one practice called Just Like Me. In situations of suffering and of joy, we practice seeing the common humanity and shared vulnerability we all have. We might hear a siren go by and be reminded of human vulnerability and think, oh, just like me. Vulnerability that we share, our common vulnerability to impulsiveness, reactivity, greed, hatred, and delusion. And when something splendid happens and your friends are full of joy, like when the Warriors beat the Celtics in the NBA final, They are happy, just like me. 
You know, when I consider how reactive I frequently am in the situations I have screwed up, I understand how much is because I have always lived and still do live in an egocentric culture, one that has encouraged prioritizing myself above others. This culture taught me to be morally self-centered, and I was for most of my life, unaware of what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches as interbeing, the natural connection to all people, coral reefs, trees, birds, dirt, ocean, etc., an integral part of this natural world. I was encouraged to see myself as a separate being whose wants might be pitted against the wants of others, And unless these others were related to me or in my group, they didn't need to be treated as like me, but as objects that could satisfy or interfere with my wants. This culture encouraged me to think that what I want and what is mine and what I think of as myself ought to take precedent over claims made by other individuals who are not me, not in my group, that did not include me certainly over animals, which I could hunt if I were so inclined, and plants that I could trample. But, and I have been lucky. Life taught me, albeit at a late date, that an appropriate response always includes seeing a situation and not prioritizing me, myself, and mine. However, smart as I am, I recently got into a dilemma and exacerbated it by being attached to what I considered my agenda. As you know, <clears throat> I often put out the newsletter at 11 o'clock on Friday. Not that anybody is really sitting there waiting for it to show up at 11 o'clock, sitting in front of their computers, iPads, or iPhones. However, I figured I had become very attached to 11 o'clock. So when Rod had COVID and had to change the schedule. I panicked, and I kept pressuring him. He's sick, and I'm saying, 11 o'clock, Rod, 11 o'clock. Finally, we sent it out, but I made so many mistakes that we had to send out a retraction. And then that retraction was full of mistakes, and we had to send out another retraction. So, <laughs> mea culpa. Since March of 2020, many people have been making appropriate responses by accepting the facts of a dangerous virus. Those who saw that the situation really did affect everyone willingly masked up, instructed to maintain distance to interrupt the spread of the disease, many did. Indeed, quite a few people, when told to get vaccinated, did it four times. These appropriate responses were not just about a separate self saying, I matter more than others. They acknowledged that in the case of COVID-19, self and other could really be the same thing. If an appropriate response means considering more than one's own desires and proclivities, one might say then that its opposite an inappropriate response often traces itself back 
to me, myself, and mine. An appropriate response is not self-centered or based on personal triggers, which are reactions we have little control over because they are part of who we are based on upbringing and societal influences. And it isn't always easy to act on an appropriate response, especially if there is historical trauma. Unless and until all our historical baggage has been cleared away, discharged, grieved, and worked out, many of our reactions or responses to things will not be appropriate for the stimulus. When something in the present that should maybe irritate us at a level of one or two on a scale of ten, and we react to it with the intensity of a six or more, it is the past that is triggered. So part of our work is to clear out the emotional baggage of the past recognizing the difference between what was and what is. Of course, let us not rule out the possibility that part of the reason we can make any kind of an appropriate response is because of someone or something in our past and our upbringing, which brings me to Father's Day and my father. Father's Day. A shout-out to the man who helped create me. Here is some of what I celebrate when I think about the depressed man who showed me affection when I was undeveloped enough not to be noticeably female, who read to me, who let me dance with my feet on his shoes and sang songs like Gonna Dance with the Dolly with the Hole in Her Stocking and Cook a Katie, Beautiful Katie, You're the Gugga Girl That I Adore. This father worked as a locksmith in downtown Los Angeles near Westlake Park, an eyesore in the making, but once peaceful, and you could rent little boats and sail. Our father would take my younger sister and me on Saturday to his tiny run-down shop, the Alvarado Locksmith, where we would stand around until he put up the Be Right Back sign and walk us a few blocks and drop us off in a movie theater where we sat through multiple showings of such movies as Anna Karenina, not understanding a thing we were seeing, but there were also lots of cartoons and a newsreel. Often that day we would go to a local restaurant, and as we walked, many brown and black people called out to our father with greetings and sometimes stopped to admire his two little girls. My father, whose name was Alan George Palmer, told us that he changed his name from Abraham Posner. He thought that when he wanted to get a job on the East Coast at Grumman's during World War II, he would not be hired with a Jewish name. And he got his middle name, George, from the man sitting next to him, filling out an application at the same time. He was the only one of six siblings to not embrace being Jewish. Somehow letting go of his name hung on as a habit, because sometimes he would come home from work in a shirt he got at a pawn shop or at a second-hand store, a shirt with Bill or Mike threaded over the pocket. My mother was infuriated and ashamed, but I thought it was funny enough to find it endearing 
and to remember it fondly and tell it to you as a positive thing. So, what is the takeaway? My father, despite, or was it because, of his disappointments and depression, was funny. He was liked and respected by people who did not look like us. And he wasn't attached to appearance. And he certainly was an influence on me. As for how this celebration called Father's Day came about, thank Mrs. Sonora Smart Dodd, whose father, the Civil War veteran William Jackson Smart, as a single parent reared six children. Mrs. Dodd wanted June 5th, the anniversary of her father's death, as a date for Father's Day. But those in charge said she did not provide the organizers with enough time to make the arrangements. And thus the celebration was put back to the third Sunday of June. The first Father's Day in June was celebrated on June 19, 1910 in Spokane, Washington. In 1924, Father's Day, a holiday to be celebrated on the third Sunday of June in 1966, though the day was not officially recognized until 1972 during the presidency of Richard Nixon. But not all fathers will be celebrating or celebrated. Some fathers may not be in touch with their children or they are not appreciated despite their involvement. A few weeks back, I read a letter a man sent to Dear Abby. He wrote that he had been the stepfather of two girls since they were two and four, and now they were 18, but they still regarded the man who left them and their mother to start another family as their dad. Abby blamed the mother, who should have said or done something different, but Abby didn't say what or how. Anyway, this father will not be getting a Father's Day card. This is true for men who have been separated from their children because they were incarcerated or made mistakes that perhaps hurt their children. So when we think about picking out a card, green card, for any number of fathers, the appropriate one might be a condolence rather than a celebratory. And we can only make an appropriate response if we listen carefully before we have that hallmark moment. Listening will help with an appropriate response. As for this date, June 19th or Juneteenth, Freedom Day, it is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States, and it has been called America's Second Independence Day. It was on June 19, 1865, that Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that all slaves were free. Juneteenth was two and a half years after President, after the Emancipation Proclamation, after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which became official on January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on Texans for several reasons. The source I looked at said this, first, there was a minimal number of Union troops available to enforce the new executive order in Texas, and there were large crops that needed labor to harvest them. It took two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation for all slaves to be finally freed. On June 15, 
2021, the U.S. Senate unanimously approved the bill that makes Juneteenth a legal public holiday. In an article called Definitely a Spiritual Battle, published in USA Today, former head coach of the Indianapolis Coats, Tony Dungy, the first African-American coach to win a Super Bowl, talked about Juneteenth. Growing up in Michigan in the 1960s, he said, I didn't hear a lot about Juneteenth. In our history classes, we were taught about the Emancipation Proclamation, but there was no mention of Juneteenth. When I got to college, many of my football teammates from Texas talked about celebrating this event growing up, so I had to do some research. As I talked to them and did some studying on the origins of the holiday, I learned that June 19, 1865, was when enslaved people in Texas finally got the announcement that they were free. He says, my first reaction upon hearing this was sadness. The proclamation from the White House had been given almost two and a half years earlier. Why did it take so long for those African Americans in Texas to hear about their freedom? But as I read more, I came to understand that it wasn't the proclamation that freed enslaved people. The Emancipation Proclamation talked about freedom, but actual freedom didn't come that easily. That freedom required a long, hard fight. And in fact, we are still fighting. And we can see by what's going on in our country today that the battle is not nearly over. I was encouraged to find out this is still him talking. I was encouraged to find out that the first celebrations of Juneteenth centered around the church. I think that's appropriate because this fight for freedom for all Americans is definitely a spiritual battle. To see it become a reality is going to require hearts to change. And I am praying that the Lord will give all of us as Americans the spirit of Juneteenth. Now, while I am not praying that the Lord will do anything, I am crossing my fingers that together, no matter how passionate or lukewarm we felt about adopting the eighth principle, that in the spirit of Juneteenth, we will undertake in our hearts and lives to make appropriate responses to racial disparity and injustice. Certain that no matter what our differences, all people are just like me.